Hi, hey, hello. Welcome to episode 27 of Trail Society brought to you by Free Trail, who's going to have a lot of fun things coming down the pipeline that we can't quite tell you about yet, but we're teasing it here because that's what we do. I am Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And our usual third co-host, <laughs> the Hilly Goat Allen, is presently hopefully asleep in France as we speak, prepping for UTMB. She flew out um, after competing in a gravel race out in Vermont this past weekend. So she is, yeah, she's in Europe, hanging out, getting ready for hopefully a very, very good performance at the end of August. But we could not be doing this without our sponsors who are helping us produce this stuff, bring you cool interviews, hopefully give you some of the content that you want. Our show today is brought to you with support from Athletic Greens, someone who we could not be doing this without. You know them as the green drink that is storming its way into all your favorite endurance-centric podcasts. I know it's a healthy chunk of change, but it's an all-in-one. It's your multivitamin, it's your probiotic, and it is so much more. If you would like to try Athletic Greens, you can head over to athleticgreens.com slash trail society there with your first order. You'll also be given a free one-year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash trail society. But let's dive into some races, some race results and some news. Keely, you threw some race results in there. What do you have? Yeah, I was at Speedgoat uh, a couple weekends ago. I got to go to the last aid station that sits at about 11,000 feet. Um, and I hiked up there in my boot because I only bummed a ride for the, fir the first mile and a half. <laughs> but luckily, I had gotten the green light to hike in the boot, so it was all good. And I took it really easy. And I actually got to see the top three men run by me who actually stayed in that exact position from about mile 25 to mile 31. And so at the Speedgoat 50K, David Sinclair ended up winning and Eric Sorensen was second. And then someone I had never heard of, Michelino Sinceri, was third. Yeah, and Mick they all Michelino. were lovely. Yeah, I, I know Michelino Cesare. He's from the Tahoe area, but now lives in Driggs, um, kind of over in Teton Valley, runs from oh, the cool. North Face. Yeah. Um, he's he's a good a good mountain athlete, good mountain runner, a good top three. <laughs> yeah. And but I was really there for the women's race. Yes, because Hillary yeah. was racing. Yeah, Hillary was there. Let's talk um, about the women's podium. But yeah, the women's race was interesting. So Jennifer Lichter was winning for a while and then ran off course and missed an aid station. So she had to backtrack and then run to that aid and then continue on. Um, from what I've heard, she missed four to six miles. Something very, you know, is very significant. Like significant. as little as three miles, as many as six miles. Yeah. Came back onto course and like, yeah. you saw her up in like seventh, I think. But I think she was yeah. as far back as like 14th when she got back onto course, which had to be devastating for yeah. a young, talented athlete who was mm -hmm. leading at that point. Yeah. And so Addie Bracey came up to where I was at in first place by about 25 or 30 minutes at that point. And she looked solid. She was, she was cruising at a really solid pace, looked very comfortable, asked me how far ahead she was at the time. I had no clue. So I said, I think pretty good. <laughs> She's like, all right. I'm like, but don't slow down. Just keep going. So I have no clue. Like the, tra the tracking system was just not very accurate. And so at times it would tell me she was 30 minutes away, but then all of a sudden someone was like five minutes. And so it was really hard to be able to tell her concretely. Um, it ended up being about 30 minutes till the group of about second through seventh, which were all within about 90 seconds to two minutes of one another, which was absolutely crazy. That's where Jennifer Lichter came in. She was like around fifth or sixth at that time. Um, and Lindsay McDonald had come in at second and Jennifer ended up 
kind of beating out all of those women, getting second place in this race. And then Lindsay McDonald, who is out of Flagstaff or was out of Flagstaff, is still out of Flagstaff. I don't actually know the answer to that, but uh, I think she is. She's with Air Vipa and she's, yeah, she's really, awesome. really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love her. She's great. And she ended up getting third, which was awesome to see. And she looked so happy out there too. And I know she'd been training a lot for this race. And so I was stoked to see her podium. It was so cool. Yeah. And then Addie Bracey is prepping for Leadville. And this is, I think, mm-hmm. a good solid kind of race effort to have in the legs pre-Leadville. I'm She's, she's, she hasn't had a, I mean, the, her time before running Leadville was not bad by any means, but I don't think it was the day that she wanted. And I think she's learned a lot since that experience. And I am so excited to see what Addie will do at Leadville. And mm-hmm. it's like what, two weeks, two weekends it's, away. It's a, yeah. It's the weekend after the Leadville hundred mountain bike race, which is a week from this Saturday. So yeah, two weeks away. And then a uh, super secret racer <laughs> on course out there. Um, bronze medalist marathoner Molly Seidel ran the 28k that that Hilly was second in just the day before that which we were kind of all like oh this is really interesting you know she had just you know not raced worlds due to a sacral stress fracture um she raced under her boyfriend's last name which is kind of like a you know that makes me feel good for her for getting out and doing a race and and not not feeling like you know your someone's going to find you in the results and like have an opinion about you, these searchable things. Like I know that she's had some issues with Strava and privacy issues. And so that could be a part of it. But, you know, I think that people also race under aliases all the time to like remove that comparison factor. And that kind of gives, gives me the heebie jeebies a little bit. Sometimes I just like, I hope she's doing okay and not pushing herself a little bit too much. Cause I think Hillary was talking to her and it sounded like she was taking it easy, but on July 17th was her first, you know, easy run back from a broken pelvis. So to go do, you know, 18 miles with 8,000 feet of climbing seems a little bit, um, ambitious. We'll say. Yeah. seems like pushing but, it a little bit, but to each, to each their own. Each we'll, their own. We, I was gonna say, we're not reserving judgment. We're kind of judging, um, which I think is mm-hmm. fair. Right. I think people are going to be wondering about, about the, yeah, and people look up to her. So I think it's like, you know, you want to put, you want to put a good image out there for people when you're recovering from something really traumatic and, Okay. Moving on. Never summer hundred K. I put never summer in here for one reason. And one reason only Meg Morgan crashed the overall podium finishing third. Never summer is a beast of hundred K it's 65 miles. It's all at super high elevations. She finished in 1315. And that was just seven minutes behind the first place male and five minutes behind the second wow. place male to finish third overall. So that was I don't know. That was, that was wild. You put another stat in there. What was the other yeah. kind of result out of never summer? Yeah. So one of my friends back in Boulder, Silke Coaster posted that four out of the six top women. So second, third, fifth, and sixth were all moms. And so she was just celebrating um, mom power at that gnarly hundred K race. That is super but, exciting. I feel like San Juan Solstice had a bit of that too, where there were a bunch of, a bunch of moms. There were moms in the top 10 at Western States. Like it's really, mm-hmm. really cool to see. Um, yeah. Mom runners out there just, uh, just, crashing the podium, storming the women's field. Very, very cool. The other result that we had on our list was the near-death marathon. Several of you sent this to us, and that is part of the Canadian death race. Um, It was, I think the big deal with it, right, was that the one, two, three overall were all men. Or not all men. Wow. All women. I'm doing really well today. (laughs) That was why it was a big deal. They were all women, which is really, really cool. Um, Can you tell us what the top three women, who the top three women were in that race? 
Sure. So first place was Priscilla Forgy. I Forgy. Second place, Jenny Quilty. She's a friend of the pod. She slides into our DMs all the time with a lot of news. We love her. And then third was Kim Cameron. Um, And so that's pretty exciting. They were first through third. And then the fourth place was a male. So 15 minutes behind them. Yeah, by 15 minutes. Heck. Crazy. So cool. Um, I think we've got an, the, the, our next couple of things are race results oriented, but aren't actually race results. So it's kind of, we've got a pre-news race topic, I will say. And the first one that you put in there was world track and field championships on home turf in Eugene, Oregon was the most successful world championships ever for team USA. And the women really, really showed up as kind of watching it. That was my impression. Yeah. And just the field part of track and field really, really showed up too. So I'm wondering if over the past years, we've started investing more money in the field area of track and field as well, because we got a lot of medals on the track, but we also got a ton of medals in the field, which was really cool. records coming, coming in those field disciplines. Sydney McLaughlin, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, on fire. There were so many. They also, ooh, really fun fact. Oh, yeah. So for the four by 400, you can have a different team for the prelims than the finals. They flew in the GOAT, Allison Felix, for the prelim to get the Team USA women's team to the final. And then Team USA, you know, obviously was a little different for the final. They brought in Sydney and a bunch of other girls and they won the final too. So that was really cool to see. Oh, yeah. Allison was like, I had a, you know, I had a hot wing in one hand and a beer in the other and... USATF was on my phone saying, Hey, one, you got one more race in you and we'll let you really retire. So that was, she posted, she tweeted something like my phone's on silent or something after that with her, with like, with a a basket of wings afterwards. And I thought that was (laughs) such a boss move. So So cool. Very, very cool. Okay. Tell us a little bit the, the, so I filled up the survey. Mm -hmm. It's the international trail running association launched it's 2022 survey and those results have been coming out and I'm wondering kind of what your biggest impressions were from it. Well, I was wondering, uh, you filled out a survey, but not many other women did. So, um, it looks like only 18% of the survey respondents were women uh, out of 9,000, you know, that's pretty small percentage. Um, and so I'm just wondering, like maybe the way they marketed the survey did not get into the inbox of many females or many, um, probably may, many North American athletes. Too, yeah. Is kind of my big concern here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was just, it was an interesting find or study. They asked a lot of questions, a lot around, you know, injuries and how much people spend on trail running equipment every year and their favorite shoe and all of these things. And a couple of things that I think came out that were kind of interesting. Um, one being the most popular shoe was Solomon, but there was no option for ultra or Adidas Terex on there at all, which are arguably like, you know, pretty, pretty popular shoes. Um, they also asked a lot about injuries, um, and 62% of the population. So that's really high have had injuries and injuries in the past year, most popular being the ankle. So welcome to the club. Um, but it, it also highlighted and, and interpreted the results in a very interesting way. And so they asked who takes breaks off of running and, you know, 20% said they take less than a week. 20% said they take a week or two and 20% said maybe more than two weeks, but over 30% don't take any breaks of running at all. And so 
to me, like, yeah, you know, the majority is taking some sort of small break, but that's a very high percentage of that population that's taking no break of running at all. And if you look at the percentage of those people who are injured, I can't help but to think there is obviously a correlation or probably a correlation there. So it just kind of highlighted something that we probably all assume that, you know, if you're not taking any sort of break throughout the year, that's probably not the best decision for your long-term health. Um, but again, obviously we don't know that that's just me kind of inferring. I also but, another yeah. interesting spot was that 69% of the respondents do not have a coach. Mm-hmm. So those of you worried that you're in competition with other coaches, I don't know, maybe just like ease off the gas a little bit. Like <laughs> lots of people still need coaches. There's plenty <laughs> of fish in the sea, my friends. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was kind of cool to see that there's a lot of opportunity out there too. If you work in the coaching space. Yes. Yep. It was, it was interesting. And then there were a couple bits of like race related news that kind of slid into my DMS. Thank you all for doing that. Um, the Vermont 100, we're going to give them a big shout out here in a second, but first and foremost, um, active, the active Joe, which is a, um, road and trail racing organization. I think they're, I believe they're one of the Western States sponsors. They have a, a sponsor spot every year that they give that, that people can apply for, you know, every, everyday runners can apply for and get that active Joe, um, spot for Western States, which is really cool. A lot of sponsor spots do go to kind of the, the every, the every man or woman, um, but we, I think when we think of sponsor spots, we think of like the pro athlete getting in, in and around the lottery type of thing. So they launched a new non-binary inclusion policy. And as quoted from their, their post was, um, they helped advise ultra sign up over the last couple of years as, as they navigated how to upgrade their registration and results software to add more inclusivity in regards to gender identity. The ultra sign up system now asks you to choose from male, female, and non-binary for the gender field. When you set up your profile. I think that's really cool. They're also one of those races that they are, they're allowing athletes to uh, select into those categories for their races to race in a non-binary category. Um, they have a, a pretty similar trans inclusion policy to that of, to that of Western States, for example, who's kind of led the charge there as far as talking about hormone, hormone therapy, and then letting the athlete elect to be in a category that they identify with. Um, so I think that that's really cool to see, you know, race organizations, um, pushing this to the, to the forefront. The Vermont 100, we've shouted them out a little bit because they are great humans and they are sponsored that they raise a ton of money every year for Vermont Adaptive. Um, they've raised two, $200,000 for Vermont Adaptive um, this past year, maybe. I'm not sure what the time frame is on that, but the race record holder, um, Brian Ruzecki, guided a visually impaired runner at the race this year, and they also have non-binary acknowledgement. And in fact, according to one of our listeners, the 100K was run was won outright by Riley Brady, who I think I met at Western States. They were crewing Ellie Pell, perhaps, mm-hmm. is a non-binary athlete who is amazing. And uh, Vermont has been working hard to offer categories for adaptive athletes and for those who identify as tra- trans and non-binary, um, which I think is really, really phenomenal. And then a quote from their um, Instagram post, based they were sharing kind of the women's results and then other results from the race. And they said, at the Vermont 100, runners who identify as non-binary may choose to compete in their own category or against their, ho- their hormonal peers in either the male or female category. Like our like our athletes with disability in the disabilities division, this option is presented as part of the race's larger push to ex- expand accessibility and inclusion in the sport of ultra running. We believe that the trails are a place for everyone and we continuously strive to make our runners, volunteers, sponsorship and fundraising opportunities as accessible and appealing to people from all backgrounds and identities. So big, huge shout outs to Amy and uh, Brian and the whole Vermont 100 team. Um, 
I, I just think they're doing really amazing stuff and they've been shouted out many, many times in our DMS. And, um, I just want to want to give them more press because that is really cool. Hmm. That is really awesome. We got to head out to that race one year. If you like the heat and you like some rolling terrain, it is definitely a good race. And then you can go get a uh, soft serve, like maple creamy ice cream. It's delicious. Um, the East coast is all about that soft serve twist. I love life. ice cream from my hometown. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, uh. it's the best. Um, so let's move over to some news and I'll kick this off because I added this to the thing. Um, it kind of continues along that the the theme that we've had through some of our most recent episodes about kind of about the post the post row era of stuff after the Dobbs decision. Uh, there was a really great article in the Washington Post um, entitled "With NCAA that with NCAA silent on abortion bans, college sports face confusion." With the idea being is that there are, turns out there are colleges with really good sports programs in states where they might be facing total abortion bans or or near total abortion bans. And there were some really great quotes from the article that I'm going to read here. And the first one is, but the end of Roe has been met with silence for most of the college sports world, including the NCAA. Inside athletic departments dominated by men, three female Division I coaches in states with abortion restrictions told the Post they were afraid to speak publicly in support of abortion rights, worried they could be targeted by their bosses, politicians, or the public. And having been a young college athlete, having a lot of friends who were young college athletes, your coach is your family. Your athletic department is your family. They're the people you turn to when, you know, things are going wrong in your life or right in your life or anything in your life. And, and they can be instrumental in helping you get healthcare, medical care. Um, so that, that I think is going to stretch a lot of organizations. And there's a, a quote from a gymnastics coach in Long Island, Randy Lane. It says, Randy Lane, the women's gymnastics coach at Long Island was one of the, was one of the, was one of a, only a few Division One coaches to speak up against the overturning of Roe, putting out a statement in June saying he was horrified by the decision. One out of every four women will have an abortion in their lifetime. That includes NCAA athletes, Lane wrote. You as gymnasts should have full control over your own bodies, choices, and health. And I, I just applaud Randy for, for taking a stance on that because I think a lot of people are remaining silent. And not only isn't that going to be a problem for recruiting athletes in those states, um, you know, Texas A&M, How's recruiting going to go um, for female athletes for these programs? Um, so I just, it's interesting. It's kind of a additional ripple effect of the overturning of Roe after the Dobbs, uh, the Dobbs verdict. So just something to think about, to ponder. It caught my eye and I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> On a more positive note. Yay, women's, positive. Women's soccer has been crushing it. Um, and so... First off, the women's gold medal game in the 2024 Olympics has been set as the soccer finale instead of the men's, which is the first time in Olympic history where this competition will conclude with the women's gold medal match instead of the men. That's really, really exciting. It's and I think that's a really good step in the right direction. So cool. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. And, and soccer is just getting a lot of hype. And I think it's finally, or maybe it's one of those first sports that's really showcasing that female sports can have a lot of viewership. Um, this really was, yeah, this was really highlighted recently um, with the England women's team. So England beat Germany this year to win the Euro Cup. Um, and this is one of the major first soccer cups wins by England. Um, 
And some of the women that were, that play for England are noticing differences. And so they're actually feeling like they're getting more respect and more airtime than they used to. Um, and for this match, there was a record of 87,000 fans in the stadium watching it and 17.4 million were watching from home, which is a lot of viewership. Um, however, there is some still stats in England that are kind of sad for women's soccer, but maybe this kind of publicity will help change this because a lot of the professional women are highlighting that only a third of girls aged 5 to 18 play soccer every week. And only 63% of schools actually offer the girls to chant the chance to play soccer during gym. And so, you know, the opportunity to play soccer is pretty low in England. And therefore, there's not that many women playing soccer in those younger ages. But, you know, hopefully as it does gain momentum and it's gaining all of this viewership, hopefully it it becomes a priority and we keep more girls in sport and and increase the amount of girls that are going through through soccer. Oh, there's I mean, there are a bunch of six year olds right now that are just like losing their Uh minds and are going to be the next, you know, they're going to be going to be, you know, Olympians in the sport of sport of soccer. So that is really, really cool. And, you know, team USA, who we are big, big fans of, um, who have had an outstanding record when it comes to women's soccer are slotted to play the, the renowned England team and it's sold out rapidly. Yeah. 90,000 people. That is so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It shows what happens when, when, when sports get airtime. Yeah. When you give women's sports airtime, when you show, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like when you show that there is value there and there's great competition and great stories there. So it's working. We're building momentum. (laughs) Yeah. And one final thing I got in my inbox this week was a newsletter from the women who FKT, who we love to follow. Um, and they were highlighting some of their, you know, like mid-year stats, even though it's a little bit past mid-year, um, and showcasing that right now, there are 47 females who have set their first ever FKT this year. And women who FKT's goal was to get 50 women to feel brave enough to shoot for a new FKT. And so, you know, we still have four or five months left in the year. And so there's still time to get those three girls to get to 50. And then, you know, hopefully we can go above that number. Um, another thing they highlighted was to increase diversity in FKT. They wanted to encourage uh, members of the BIPOC community, queer, transgender, um, to to go for FKTs. And so right now they have six this year who have gone for FKTs, which is not great. But, you know, it's a step in the right direction. I'm going to kick myself for saying that again. But I think, you know, I'm glad that they're putting emphasis around trying to encourage diversity in this space. Um, and then the last thing they highlighted was right now we're we were ahead of men for the year in Oregon and Washington, female to men in terms of FKTs. Right now, there's 40 FKTs by women in the state and 45 by men. And so they're trying to encourage women in those two states to go out for FKTs and try to sh- shift that balance again the other way. That's really, really cool. And I would say, you know, like part of part of what's going to build this is like us talking about it, is groups talking about it, saying, hey, like we want to support you in getting out there and trying this thing and getting out there and talking about this thing. So um, yeah, they've they've they're a really cool organization. Um, give them a Google. Uh, we'll put their we'll put their link in our show notes, but uh, they've got cool spreadsheets too with like FKTs by, by in a couple of regions, including Washington, Oregon. And I think there's some for some other states. So it kind of it goes by distance, and it can give you an idea of, of what are established routes and what don't what don't have established routes for for women or for non-binary folks on those routes. So give it a gander. It's very very cool. Um, something that happened to me today. 
I got a little notice in my inbox from the feed and I'm really, really excited. I need more coffee and more snacks, apparently. Um, (laughs) I just ran out of waffles. So this could not come at a better time. I'm assuming you're just feeding JT because he's training for the Leadville 100 mountain bike race. But um, have you been enjoying any new product? Are you excited to order something and try something new? I'm definitely excited to order some new things. I feel like as I've been biking a lot more, I don't love to eat just my traditional running fuel. So, you know, going on the feed and being able to sample like every single bar known to man that's made with, you know, a lot of lovely ingredients. I'm really excited to do. And then, yeah, I definitely am getting more things for JT, but as I'm switching and now I'm able to do a lot more, like it's, it's more for me. The snacks, <laughs> the snacks are coming back over. Yeah, But that, actually but... the coffee on there is amazing. I don't oh. know if you've tried it, but the coffee beans are phenomenal on there. And I've tried three different kinds already. And yeah, I'm a wow. fiend. Okay. We, we brought our espresso machine to park city and <laughs> I don't regret it at all, but yeah, they have Northern coffee works on there. Both of their blends are absolutely amazing. And then I also tried the coffee ride. Um, and all three were really, really good. They all grind really well and like a pretty good medium roast. Um, what I'm going to try next is the espresso roast specifically by the coffee ride. And I'm really excited about that one. That is very exciting. Yeah, I'm big, big in the bar, the bar family. I'm not so much a bar person when I run, but when I ride or do other activities, I'm all about the bar lifestyle. Um, I just they're easier to get down when I'm not running. Um, but if you would like to order a box of stuff, your one-stop shop from the feed, you can go to thefeed.com slash trail society and you can use our new code trail society. 15 for 15% off your order. Again, that is the feed.com slash trail society, but enough about snacks. We'll talk about snacks later. We have a really, really great interview for you today. Um, we got to talk with a good friend of mine from the Bay area, Claire Bernard Miller. She's got a doctorate in physical therapy from UCSF and she specializes in a couple of regions of the body, generally the foot and the ankle, but also she's a pelvic floor PT. And that's really why we wanted to bring her on. Not only is she postpartum, not only has she dealt with injuries that are related to pelvic floor dysfunction, but we knew that, you know, her story and the work she does would just be such a brilliant thing to share. So we're going to step out of the way. We're going to get right out of the way here. And we're going to let Claire tell you a little bit more about herself. My name's Claire Bernard Miller. I'm a physical therapist in Fairfax, California. So that's just north of San Francisco in Marin County. I am a runner and uh, I also love to swim and to ride my bike. Uh, And I'm a new mom. Uh, So I have an 11 month old son named Boone and uh, husband Levi and dog Stella. My business is Activate Physical Therapy in Fairfax, California. So my website is activateptw.com. And um, I should know what my Instagram is for my business, but I don't. I think it's Activate Physical Therapy. Let me make sure. Yeah. Activate Physical Therapy is my Instagram. So you can find my website through that too. My experiences in my own body have really led me to the specializations that I now uh, help other people deal with. Um, so yeah, I kind of specialize in the pelvis down. So lower extremity, a lot of gait mechanics, running mechanics, and that my, uh, I guess my love for physical therapy or my interest in physical therapy started 
um, right after college. I thought I wanted to go to med school. Um, so I was pre-med in college. And then after college, and I, I ran since like seventh grade. So I was running, I was on a run and um, my back seized up right after college. I'd just graduated. And that's an important point because I uh, had just gotten kicked off of my health insurance that I was in through um, my college. Um, and at that point, I didn't really have much experience with physical therapists. I had no idea you could see a physical therapist without health insurance. So I kind of just thought I was stuck. Like I didn't want to go to the emergency room. I literally couldn't walk. And so I couldn't go to work. Um, and my husband, then boyfriend, Levi, connected me with a physical therapist that he had worked with in college. Um, and the guy saw me after hours, got me back to walking, running like relatively quickly. Um, and I was just really inspired by him. Um, so that got me thinking, okay, maybe I want to go into physical therapy. Uh, and then we moved out to San Francisco and I got a job as a physical therapy aide, um, just to see like, okay, is this the kind of field I would want to work in? Um, and it was really inspiring. So, uh, that's kind of what led me into physical therapy. And then while I was in PT school, I went to UCSF, I uh, had a pubic bone stress reaction. Um, and that was really debilitating. It definitely uh, changed my relationship with running. Um, and I had pain for three years uh, with running. Um, and I had seen a pelvic PT. I had seen a running PT. I've seen chiropractors. Like I kind of ran the gamut of trying to figure out how to run without pain. And it was so incredibly frustrating. And I was in PT school and like, I was even asking my instructors. Uh, and uh, so that was incredibly frustrating. And it wasn't until I saw a different pelvic PT that she really like helped me put the pieces together uh, and helped me figure out what what I was dealing with and how to run without pain. So that was another kind of inspirational moment. And throughout all of these experiences, um, I've realized how to help myself so that I can help other people. Um, and then I also have a really big interest in foot and ankle, um, also from my own injury. I fractured my calcaneus um, and kind of went down the rabbit hole of figuring out, okay, okay, what, what's going on in the foot? What's the mechanics? I think there's a really huge direct connection between the hip and the pelvis and the foot and the ankle. Um, and so now I work as a virtual practitioner for a company called Gate Happens. Um, they've got a big Instagram presence. Um, and so I have learned so much about the foot and the ankle, uh, through that experience way more than I learned about the foot and the ankle in PT school. I think of like every injury, including like having a baby, uh, as experience so that I can help other people. Like I had a pretty traumatic birth. Um, and like what kind of got me through those first few days was like, all right, this is going to make me a better pelvic PT. Now that I've gone through pregnancy and having a baby, uh, being postpartum, I just have a much better understanding of 
what it's like to go through all of that and what, how your body changes and what things can help and how you have to modify or how I had to modify how everybody's body is different. Pelvic floor PT is for anybody with a pelvis. So I'm pretty sure most humans have a pelvis. Uh, so anybody can seek pelvic floor PT. Um, your pelvic floor is a bowl of muscles that sits on the inside of your pelvis. So I'm going to show my pelvis model. And then for those just listening, I'll kind of try to describe it. So it's the red muscles. So uh, a bowl of muscles that sits on the inside of your pelvis. And these muscles help lift and support your pelvic organs, sustain optimal bowel and bladder health, and then promote good sexual function. So in terms of running this, or actually any like athletic activity, but specifically high impact activities like running, um, your pelvic floor is a bowl of muscles, just like your glutes are a group of muscles, just like your hamstrings are a group of muscles. Um, and they need good function so that you can absorb force when you do high impact activities or when you're running. Um, so that's what the pelvic floor is. I guess it's a good time to kind of explain why it's important too, um, in a more detailed way. So your pelvic floor is part of your core canister. So you need a good stable torso so that your legs can move with good mechanics when you're walking, when you're running, when you're really doing anything with movement. Um, so your core canister consists of your pelvic floor, your respiratory diaphragm, your abdominal corset. So that's your deep abdominals and some small muscles in your back and then your deep hip rotators. Those all work to stabilize your torso. Your pelvic floor sits in the bowl of your pelvis and your respiratory diaphragm sits directly above it, or we want it to sit directly above it, ideally. Um, they, your diaphragm and your pelvic floor move together. So as you're inhaling, your lungs are filling with air, and your diaphragm goes down. So it contracts down your pelvic floor responds, um, because it's, there's an increase in, uh, intra abdominal pressure. So your pelvic floor descends down. Then when you're exhaling, the opposite occurs, your diaphragm goes back to its resting position and your pelvic floor lifts up. So that's all to say, like your pelvic floor works with your breath. Ideally, we want it to work without having to think about it, but a lot of pelvic floor PT starts with breathing exercises. Um, so yeah, anybody with a pelvis could probably benefit from pelvic PT. Um, I think in pregnancy, there's a lot of changes that are going on in your body, specifically around your pelvis and your belly. Um, so that's like a great time to go see a pelvic PT. Um, but other than pregnancy, like anybody with any sort of pain in or around your pelvis, uh, in your hips, SI joints, pubic symphysis, those are just naming some, a few examples. Um, the, that like is a direct correlation of like, you could go see a pelvic PT and probably benefit a lot from it. Males, uh, have this, some are not the same, but very similar anatomy. Like everybody has a pelvic floor 
everybody has a respiratory diaphragm. Anybody who's doing high impact activities need needs to have like a really strong stable torso. Um, and so, yeah, it's not just uh, females or people identifying as women um, that that can benefit from pelvic PT. And I think a really great example is my husband, Levi. He goes and sees the same pelvic PT that I do because um, he's had pelvic bone stress fractures and um, yeah, foot injuries could be connected to a pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, it's really just like, uh, this is probably not like what listeners want to hear. Cause it's like very vague, <laughs> but a lot of this stuff is a gray area. Um, your pelvic floor is like a, just a group of muscles that help it is helping you absorb shock. So if you're not absorbing shock from your pelvic floor, you can just have more, uh, forces down the chain or up the chain. So, um, other areas where that is like, uh, very common to seek a pelvic floor PT would be pain, uh, with vaginal penetration or pain with sex, um, incontinence. So that's leaking urine, leaking feces. Um, very common, uh, for runners is to leak urine when you run, when you cough or sneeze. I can't tell you how many women say, oh yeah, I mean, I leak when I jump rope or when I run, but you know, I had a baby. It's like, that's common, but it's not normal. And it, you don't have to live the rest of your life that way. I mean, any sort of high impact activity, if you're not able to control the load of your abdominal cavity, um, just that increased load, whether you're running or you're a gymnast or you're a heavy lifter, like incontinence is common. Mm -hmm. It's not normal and it doesn't have to correlate with having a baby. Going to see a pelvic floor PT doesn't mean they have to go internal. I think some people get fearful of that. Um, it's totally up to the person. Um, I see a lot of people like I saw a woman a couple of weeks ago who um, was having like SI joint pain and uh, foot pain. Um, and I was asking her, okay, how long have you been having this? Oh, I've ha been having it on and off for about 11 years. Okay. How old's your daughter? Oh, she's 11 years old. It's like, okay, <laughs> uh, let's talk about the pelvis and the pelvic floor. Okay. I'm sure many people sitting there were like, wait, what? We're talking about all this. I don't want to touch that. I don't want to touch incontinence. I don't want to touch, you know, pay, like pay, painful intercourse, all these things that feel, that feel like, you know, taboo, this black box. But you know, the thing is that these things are common, but they're not normal. And so it's important to address these things. We live with these things. We tolerate these things, but why, why do we just kind of like, let them happen. So I, I really appreciate Claire's perspective on this and the idea of driving it home over and over again. This is common, but it's not normal. Yeah. And, and obviously that is really quite the common theme in female sports, right? There's always these things that come out later where everyone responds by saying, oh yeah, me too. Oh yeah, me too. When at the end of the day, like it's not healthy. So, you know, people who for a while were saying, you know, I train hard enough that I don't get my menstrual cycle they all thought that was common and they thought it was normal, but we find out later that it's not normal. And so, yeah, I feel like she really puts 
puts that into perspective and realizing that this is common in women's sports. And so talking about stuff that is really uncomfortable to, to kind of realize that it's not normal is it's really important for female sport. Yeah. And I just love also just her personal, you, you just feel it like her personal attachment to what she does just based on her own experiences. And I think that adds a lot to like how much she can impact not only the patients that she works with, but just like, you know, in the interview, right. Like how, how she talks about all, all of these issues. Um, so yeah, I agree. Uh, she was just wonderful to talk to, but also just like, it brings that personal importance to the, to all of these issues and makes me feel like, you know, not uncomfortable talking about them. Yeah. Breaking down those walls of this idea that like, you know, kind of hearkening back to the last episode too, like these aren't, let's like not think about them as symptoms. Let's think about them as experiences, right? Like we all have these experiences and some are going to be the same and some are going to be different, but talking about them and sharing these experiences allows us to be less afraid of them, allows us to, to share that with our peers and our mentors and our mentees. Like, I think that is such an important thing to kind of, you know, bring out of this and bring home every single time. Yeah. And, and she's also really good at breaking down pregnancy and postpartum and what happens to the woman's body in a really digestible way. And so let's cut back to the interview now to hear her talk about pregnancy and postpartum and then how you can utilize a pelvic floor PT as well as your OBGYN to really start to come back to sport after, after these traumatic events to your body. When you are pregnant, you're, you have increased laxity. Um, so you have an increase in relaxing hormone, um, especially in your first and your third trimesters. So what that means is that, uh, ligaments, so ligaments hold, uh, connect from one bone to another bone. Um, and they are, uh, they have decreased stability. So basically you have decreased stability in your body, uh, and especially in and around your pelvis. Um, so that's a big change for your body, along with tons of other hormones that are increasing and decreasing throughout the um, pregnancy journey. Um, so your pelvic floor um, has to work harder because it's a muscle to stabilize for that incre uh, decreased lax or increased laxity. Um, and then you're growing a human on top of your pelvis. So there's a ton of increased load on your pelvic floor. Along with that, that abdo abdominal uh, corset that I was talking about earlier, it's obviously getting stretched. Um, so those muscles are uh, in a, just a stretched position. So tons of changes in your abdominal corset, in your diaphragm, in your pelvic floor, all of those muscles that I was talking about that um, require so much stability. Um, so that's during pregnancy and then delivery, um, your baby either comes out through your pelvic floor or above your pelvis. Um, and your pelvic floor is impacted by both of those. Um, so if you have a vaginal delivery, your, uh, pelvic floor needs to completely lengthen to get a baby and their head out. Um, and then after birth, Oftentimes you're not really like loose, like people think, but you're more just contracted. Um, and that's the body's response to a traumatic event. So if you think about like any sort of traumatic event and your, your body is just tense up birth is 
to varying degrees, a traumatic event, um, especially for your pelvic floor. And in a similar way, when you have a C-section, although the baby's not coming out through your pelvis, um, your muscles respond to that trauma in a similar way. So they're just in a contracted position. So that's why when your doctor just says, oh, go home and do Kegels, that's not actually what you should be doing. We want to lengthen, and this is a lot of pelvic floor, whether it's like pregnancy or uh, non-pregnancy is your, and especially for runners or uh, high impact activities, um, your muscles just get in a contracted state. So I like to give the analogy of your biceps. So you think, cause it's people pretty much know what your biceps are. It bends your elbow and straightens your elbow. So if you think about doing bicep curls and so for people who can't see me, I'm my, I have my elbow almost bent all the way and then you're doing a bicep curl. So your elbow is bent all the way. And then you're going back to that small range of motion and you're doing a bicep curl with very, very little range of motion. That's like doing a Kegel when your pelvic floor is already in a contracted state. If you're not able to fully lengthen the muscle, you're not able to fully strengthen it. So a lot of pelvic floor PT is teaching somebody to relax their pelvic floor all the way. And that goes with the breathing that I was talking about. There is no time that's too early and no time that's too late to see a pelvic floor PT. Um, so if you're thinking about, oh, I wanna like make sure my body is um, functioning in the best way possible, uh, thinking about getting pregnant, like going to see a pelvic floor PT is a great idea. Um, you can also learn to fully relax and fully contract your pelvic floor through different videos. Like I have a video, um, I have a YouTube channel, probably have like 20 subscribers, <laughs> but I have, uh, or maybe it's on my Instagram. I can't remember either way. I'm really bad with social media, but, um, I have a video explaining how to fully relax and fully contract your pelvic floor. Um, and that could be a great place to start where you're just bringing awareness to your pelvic floor, first understanding what your pelvic floor is and then learning how to fully relax and then fully contract. Relaxation is the first place to go. Um, and, and then if you are able to see a pelvic PT, that can be so, so beneficial because there's um, a lot of people aren't totally sure if they're relaxing or contracting their pelvic floor uh, by just watching a video. And that's where an internal exam is really, really beneficial because a pelvic PT can say, okay, you're getting a lot of contraction anteriorly, but not so much posteriorly, or you actually aren't relaxing your pelvic floor at all. So let's try these other cues. I can vouch for that 110%. I am terrible at relaxing, it turns out. And it like I need a lot of coaching uh to get to a place where I can where I can practice that on my own. So um it can feel or seem very intimidating to go in and and do that. But I would say that people that are working in pelvic floor PT are, are there for a reason um and are are there to kind of guide, guide and help you and keep you in a safe space and all that that kind of thing. So um while it might seem seem intimidating. I, I can vouch for it personally as being, you know, some coaching, coaching in that regard can, can go a long way. So moving kind of back over to that, that postpartum 
um, side of care is that, you know, kind of, I, I just want to hit on it one more time, right. Is that both, both vaginal delivery and a C-section causes, causes trauma to those muscles and causes that contraction, um, of those, of those muscles that need to kind of be relaxed so that they can build back strength. Is there anything else kind of in that postpartum world that is, that is going on, that is inhibiting to the pelvic floor besides that just being in that contracted, those muscles and that tissue being in that contracted state? Well, it all depends on, um, how, what, what your delivery was. Like, um, if you had tearing and you have stitches there that can really affect it. Um, yeah, all sorts of things depend if you had a vacuum extraction or if you have scar tissue from your C-section, things like that, that can all, um, contribute to it. I guess one other thing I wanted to point out was, um, that contracted state can also cause incontinence. Interesting. Um, So yeah, because you're not having, you're not getting that full relaxation so that your pelvis, your pelvic floor is not functioning in the optimal way. It's not able to support your bowel and bladder function. And when you go through like a breathing exercise of relaxing and contracting your pelvic floor, a lot of people think it's counterintuitive too, because you're inhaling and you're relaxing your pelvic floor and then you're exhaling and you're contracting it. So people are like, wait, I thought it was the other way. And then, so it's like kind of retraining, like, no, okay, this is an exercise we're doing. And then we want, it's just like training your core. We want it to function without having to think about it, but to start, okay, we're going to think about it. Your OB will clear you for exercise probably at your six weeks, six week checkup. That doesn't mean you should just go exercise like you are before you were pregnant. Um, You want to slowly build up your pelvic floor PT might say something different than your OB. Like your OB is just checking for like big warning signs. Like they're, they actually don't even like some, some of them don't even like know what pelvic floor PTs do. Um, so I think your pelvic floor PT will be a better resource in terms of getting you back to the activities that you want to do. Um, so if somebody comes in, um, we, um, will talk a lot about pregnancy and birth and what they're feeling afterwards. Um, sometimes they're not even experiencing like pelvic pain. Like I know for me, postpartum, I had back pain and shoulder pain. That was like really debilitating, like in those immediate weeks, postpartum. Um, so it's, it doesn't have to be an internal exam right away. And that really depends on the, um, the comfort level of the person. Um, I mean, after you give birth, so many people have like been in and around your pelvis that like, you're probably pretty comfortable with somebody doing an internal exam. Uh, but that's not everybody. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll do a lot of breathing work. Um, and that's like the first place you want to Um, you want to work on after having a baby, um, you're lifting a baby, like anywhere from four to 12 pounds, uh, right away. So you're doing a lot of lifting that can cause a lot of low back issues or issues anywhere, shoulder issues. Um, so it's really like an overall assessment of how the person's body is doing, not just their pelvic floor. Um, but getting more into the pelvic floor, um, it'll be like 
if the person does want to do an internal exam, a lot of soft tissue work because your body has gone through so much trauma. And we talked about that contracted state of your pelvic floor, just getting those muscles to relax. Like, just like you would go for like a massage or soft tissue work on any other area of your body. Um, the easiest way to do soft tissue work on the pelvic floor is from an internal exam. Common worries or complaints would be um, diastasis recti. So that's um, during pregnancy, when your belly is growing, you your abdominal muscles are literally getting pulled apart because your belly. Um, so after you give birth, it goes back. Um, it doesn't go back to necessarily your body before pregnancy, but um, diastasis recti is actually a lengthening of the sheath between your abdominal muscles on each side. So if you think about like six pack abs, that line that goes down the middle is your linea alba. And so with diastasis recti, that linea alba is uh, lengthened. So um, we don't, everybody has some degree of that separation because we think about like that six pack abs, we don't have three pack abs. So about like one finger width is normal. Um, right after giving birth, you're not gonna go back to one finger width. Like you might be two, um, but with time and with pelvic PT and getting your deep transverse abdominis engaged, um, you can bring that back towards um, what we think about as normal. Um, but it doesn't happen with everybody. So a lot, of, and I think that's like a really common thing that people worry about during pregnancy and after pregnancy is like, are my abs going to not come back together? Um, and then another one is prolapse. Um, so prolapse is, um, so I talked about how your, your pelvic floor helps to lift and support your pelvic organs. So as you're pregnant, you're growing a human and your pelvic floor is getting a lot more impact. Um, so you don't have as much support for your pelvic organs and your pelvic organs are held up by ligaments. So with that ligament laxity too, when you're pregnant, um, you have like those pelvic organs aren't supported as much. So they can start to drop on, um, down on your vaginal wall. So, um, and there's varying degrees of prolapse, just like there's varying degrees of episiotomies and hamstring tears. Um, so, uh, a lot of people are afraid of getting like prolapse after, um, after having a baby and pro so prolapse can um, be caused by that decrease in support during pregnancy. And it can also be caused by like extreme pushing during delivery um, and then doing too much too soon after um, in like the postpartum time, um, because you don't have that support of your pelvic floor afterwards. You're just putting, like, if you go running too soon, you can feel like a heaviness in like, it kind of feels like a tampon falling out. That's a really common um, symptom. Um, and that would be, um, there's different kinds of prolapse, but um, that's a common thing that people worry about as well. You can assess um, prolapse with an internal exam too. Um, and then if you catch it early enough, 
um, you can like uh, keep it from getting worse and you can most likely get that or not most likely, but you could get it to go away that symptom. Um, but there are other things you can do like pessaries, um, to help support your pelvis so that you can still run, um, after you've worked on it for a little bit. I think many of us think of the labor and delivery portion of, of pregnancy as, as the traumatic portion, even if you have a relatively smooth, um, delivery, you know, there's still, there's still trauma to those tissues, still trauma to that musculature and to those, the, those joint spaces and cavities, you know, but truly like pregnancy, the, the act of growing a child, you know, stresses the body, you know, you've got increased joint laxity and laxity in these ligaments and these tendons. Um, and then running itself is this high impact activity that puts a lot of pressure on the pelvic floor. So it's really interesting to kind of slowly paint this picture in my brain of all these little things and how they impact our bodies. And I think, you know, sitting here as a person who's never had a baby, you know, I take all of this for granted, right. I'm like, my body operates mostly. Okay. Um, so I think that was really interesting to kind of see that picture laid out for us as far as like, what is actually happening to the, as she says, that bowl, that bowl of muscles in that makes up your pelvic floor. Yeah. And so thinking about pregnancy and my own possible journey, like I'm already thinking that I need to go see a pelvic PT right now, you know, given my, my running and all that. And so when she talked about prehab for pregnancy, it really resonated with me because I'm like, we, we do prehab for a lot of different things. Um, but if you go into pregnancy with a really, really weak pelvic floor and your, like your ability to control your core is not very good, you're not going to have that good of a recovery from pregnancy either. And so I think that prehab part is not talked about, but is also really, really important for us to consider when we are thinking about going into a pregnancy, especially being athletes beforehand. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And then I, I'm thinking about like my personal history too, about how everything is interconnected. And of course, like I've heard this before, but specifically with like my foot and like ankle injuries, right? It's like, okay, well then should I be looking elsewhere, right? Like, of course, always, you know, there's always injuries that kind of originate their down chain, they originate upstream. So, um, and I know like Claire mentioned that she's basically from the pelvis down is like her area specialty. So there's all of this interconnectedness and uh, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. And also, you know, everyone, you know, everyone has a pelvis too. So it could all be related if, even if you haven't had a baby or preparing to have a baby. Yeah. And I think she talks a lot about how women come to her with common worries, right? They think that they're going to have all of these things happen. And she says that, you know, like something like prolapse could happen, but that you can work with your pelvic floor PT to really like get those muscles to fit back together. But she also does say that, you know, running too much too soon or running too hard too soon can increase your propensity to getting these complications after pregnancy. And so she really emphasizes just trying to listen to your body and work with your pelvic floor PT um, to go back at a very like smart rate. And I think that she really practices what she preaches because as we listen to her personal journey with pregnancy, um, let's cut back here and hear about how she dealt with her return to run after her, her pregnancy. I ran through my pregnancy up until about six months. Uh, so yeah. And then I swam and I uh, rode my bike and then 
when I didn't feel totally comfortable riding my bike outside, I switched to the stationary bike. Um, but I swam and I rode the stationary bike up until the day that I went into labor. Um, so I think I was very, um, aware of my body through pregnancy. And the reason I stopped running was because I was having, um, discomfort at night in my pelvis where I'm like, okay, I could keep running, but like, why am I doing this? Just because I want to keep running. And then it's like so uncomfortable at night. So then I was like, I think, I think I, I want to stop. Um, and I knew that to some degree, pushing through symptoms in pregnancy is going to make the postpartum recovery harder. I think everybody is different, just like you highlighted um, in what they're able to do. Like I was so much slower running when I was pregnant. I was thinking about like women who can still run like super fast smiles or just fast in general. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. There's no way my body could do this. Um, and, but I was able to stay active, like to a pretty high degree, um, through my pregnancy. So I think that really helped. And then doing pelvic floor PT through my um, pregnancy was so, so helpful. Um, and then, so for my birth, I was in labor for 63 hours which sucked. <laughs> um, and then, so it was a really, really long labor. Um, and then it ended in an emergency, um, because what we found out afterwards was, uh, the, um, umbilical cord was short. So mm -hmm. as he would drop down into my pelvis, when I started pushing, um, the, his heart rate, heart rate would drop. So then it became an emergency and then they got his heart rate normalized again. And then I started pushing again and again, his heart rate dropped. Um, and so they ended up using a vacuum extraction and gave me a grade four episiotomy. Oh, so wow. an episiotomy, yeah. <laughs> an episiotomy for those of those people who don't know is, um, a cut between your vagina and your rectum. And it's a varying degree of one through four, four being the most. So a grade four episiotomy, you cut, you're cutting from your vagina to your rectum. Um, so that was nothing I ever thought would happen to me. Like I was like, okay, I know that there are things that are not under your control when you give birth and a C-section, like if it's an emergency, like that might happen. Um, an episiotomy, like it used to be routine for women where they would just cut it because they thought it would decrease the amount of tearing. Um, and they don't do that anymore. So I like, I don't know. It, it's just like, I think the stats are like two to 3% of women go through a, or have a grade four episiotomy. So it was just never something that never crossed my mind, which I think is a good example of like, you can try to control as much as you can, or like you can worry about things that end up not being an issue at all. And then like things that you never thought you would worry about end up happening. <laughs> um, yeah. Can you, I think I've seen, I've heard uh, people relate episiotomies or, or great grades of tears to like hamstring tears. Is there like, 
kind of like saying like this is this is bad type of thing like i.e like you know this is akin to like a a, a ham a bad hamstring yeah. hamstring tear can is there a way to relate that for, yeah, for so folks you like the hamstring getting totally torn off the bone so pretty extreme yeah okay. <laughs> um pretty much the most extreme that you could have um so yeah that and i mean this might be getting too too much into it but like i didn't even know that they were going to do it until after it was done so mm-hmm. that was like pretty traumatic for me to be like, oh yeah, you had a grade four episiotomy. And like, I knew they were going to use the vacuum at the end. She told me, but, uh, it was, yeah. It it's was still alarming, right. To kind of have alarming. to have to process that after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're like given a baby and like, also, I don't know. It was, it was, it was pretty shocking. Um, so for my recovery, um, I think I was mostly traumatized about like worrying what the recovery would be. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that goes a lot to like fear of the unknown, which is really hard for me. Um, And if someone could have told me your recovery is going to be totally fine, then I like, and and, you know, nobody can tell you that. but I don't think I would have been so traumatized. Um, but the good news is my recovery was totally fine. <laughs> um, oh, the unknown is, I mean, I think that's what scares me about pregnancy, right? Being completely frank about it is that like, I am terrified of the unknown of what is that do to my body? What does that do in my return to activity after the fact? Am I just going to hate the entire experience? Like the unknown, I think is, I think we, we all resonate, resonates with all of us, right? The fear of the unknown is profound in most of our everyday lives. And so I think pregnancy and postpartum return to sport really highlights or just not knowing what the delivery process is going to be like, right. As a first, particularly as a first time mother. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that that really resonates, um, with all of us, all of us here. And it's great to hear that, you know, your recovery was in fact, in fact, fine. So, you know, are you part of the stroller, the stroller brigade out running, pushing a stroller or or what's running looking like right now? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I do some stroller miles. Um, I think actually like, well, just being able to, I mean, running's always been my favorite sport. Um, I've really gained a love for swimming too, but there's just a freedom of running. Like I don't have to explain it to anybody here because you guys all know it. Um, that yeah, it's just such a great feeling. So to be able to do that with a stroller is like also freeing because you don't need to like rely on childcare. You don't need to rely on anybody else, but you can just bring your baby along. And I think I'm very fortunate that my son likes being in the stroller and he likes stroller running. Um, so yeah, so now, um, I mean, I took, uh, four months off of running postpartum. Um, and I was able to, to like start a a walk run program at three months and I just didn't feel like I was ready. My knees were kind of bothering me and I've never had knee issues. So I was like, I'm not ready. I waited another month. And then I did, um, a walk run program, which is like the walk run program. I give most people when they're returning from an injury. And I kind of always viewed like, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, but, um, 
like I viewed birth as like a planned injury (laughs) where like, this is my choice. Um, and I know I'm going to like be going through this slow process of, it's like a huge change in your body. It's a new body that you're, um, figuring out along with like a human that you're figuring out. Um, so yeah, it was like, I like, I, I knew I, I mean, I'm an injury prone person. So I already knew that like, I would be pretty conservative. Um, but I would say that it's been like a great learning experience and I've had a pretty great recovery. I thought it was really interesting that she, you know, was like, I I went into pregnancy knowing that this was kind of an injury that I was choosing to work through and that I was going to have to take time on the backside of it, that she was going to have to take time on the backside of that to recover properly. And I just thought that that was a really, you know, interesting and thoughtful approach that, you know, hadn't occurred to me as a person who's not had a baby yet. Um, but I thought that was really like very profound. You know, she has, we, we were on the roller coaster ride with her, right? Like, I think we were all on the verge of tears listening to her, her story there, but to know that, you know, she came back because she listened to her body really well and, and, and listened to those instincts and her own personal training and, and knowledge as, as a doctor of physical therapy. I thought that was really cool to hear, um, where, where she's made it to at this point. Yeah. And I think there's like a theme almost of like what we've been hearing with just like, you know, a couple episodes ago when, you know, you interviewed Vadia and Liz, it's like, that's exactly what they were talking about there. Right. It's like listening to your body, like giving yourself permission to take it slow. Um, and I think she's really good about Claire. Claire is really good about like, okay, this is, it's like your experience. Everyone's is a slightly different, but then, you know, letting, letting it help, you know, guide you in yours. Yeah. And I just thought it was really impressive that she was able to, you know, take a recommendation from her doctor who said, you know, you can probably start running now three months after. And she denied that. And she said, no, I actually need another month before I can start my walk run program to begin running again. And I'm going to honor that so that I, you know, can actually return to running and, and honor my body along the way. Yeah. And she rolled with that unknown so, so well. And I think that's what really resonated with, with me probably resonate with all of us, right? Like the return, the return to something is unknown. The, what is going to happen to your body is unknown. We've all dealt with that with injury in general, right? Like that it's a non-linear like process. And I think that's important to, to remember is that, you know, comparison can creep up here. It's really easy to see someone out crushing it really quickly after having a baby, but you know, recovery for most of us is non-linear and injury in, in pregnancy and in many, many things in life. And so I think it's really you know, that is what I will be taking forward from this interview personally is like to kind of lean into that a little bit and, and be okay with the unknown because, you know, eventually like I will be fine. Okay. Once again, I'm biased about everyone here. I love it. You know, I love, I love what we've got going, but man, do I love Claire Bernard Miller and we will have to have her back on to do some ankle foot talking with us. Send us your ankle and foot questions. And then we'll just like create a large list of them and we'll send them all to Claire, but you can find more about Claire in our show notes. Um, reach out to her. She does virtual visits as well. She is brilliant. Um, she was the first PT I saw when I got my MRI results back 
and I had a bunch of stress reactions and fractures in my pelvis. Um, and then she went on maternity leave. So, um, she is really wonderful and cannot, uh, give her enough praise, but to round things out, to finish things off our usual, our society slam brought to you by our really good friends at aura ring off air. We were just gushing, gushing over aura ring because they have some really exciting news that came out this past week. And Keely, I'm wondering if you can fill in everyone as to what that was. Yeah. So we already told you guys that aura was saying when everything came out about Roe v. Wade, that they will protect your data, right? That they won't share your data with your employer or with, with the federal government or whatever, so that you'll have that to yourself and that nobody can track your fertility or your pregnancy or anything like that. Um, but more recently, they've now partnered with the app called Natural Cycles. Um, and Natural Cycles is an FDA-approved uh, birth control app that is used to prevent pregnancy naturally. And it's also used to plan pregnancy. Um, and they basically partnered with Aura to use the Aura technology to monitor your body temperature instead of having you have to set a timer every day and actually monitor your body temperature every single day. You actually just now can wear the Aura ring to sleep and it'll calculate your body temperature and feed all that data into the app so that the app can then protect project your fertile window so that you then can, you know, plan to, to try to get pregnant around that time. Um, and this partnership is really cool. Um, basically you'll save 20% off a natural cycle subscription and get $40 off an aura ring when you sign up on the natural cycles website. Um, and the other really cool thing is they accept FSA and HSA. So that's like your, your savings account for healthcare. Um, they'll let you use that because it is an FDA approved, um, device for tracking your fertility window and protecting yourself from pregnancy. Yeah. And super, super effective about as effective as birth control, traditional birth control pills, um, and this I think is probably tied into original like research that we saw coming out of like UC Davis and some other organizations this past year using Aura Ring, um, in which they found that they could predict pregnancy ahead of most standard um pregnancy tests based on body temperature. So they've like this has been in the works for a long time. This is probably the result of that clinical trial that was the next step of that study to be done. So very, very cool that it is launched publicly. Um, yeah, that makes me really excited. Mm -hmm. Yay. Science. Yay. Lady driven science. Yay. Science that is designed for women. That is exciting. Yeah. We're coming, we're coming a long ways. Yeah, we are. We're making, we're making strides forward. Okay. I had a great little society slam slide into my DMS. Y'all are really good at that. And you know, there was some praise. They praised us, which I always take a compliment. I love a compliment sandwich. You know, give, tell, tell me something nice. Tell me something critical. Tell me something nice. I will generally listen and respond well to that. But um, they actually had a question. And their question was that a buddy of theirs recently asked um, for them to pace them at the Dark Divide 100 miler. And they were wondering if they had, if we had any tips for a first time pacer, because you're right. That can be a really intimidating ask first time pacer. Do you, or do you not have experience at that distance? Right? Like, Sarah Kyes asked me to pace her at Western States. And I was like, okay, this is a big ask. I'm really excited about it. I know nothing about this race. This is going to be crazy. This is before I had run it. Um, and you don't know what to expect. And that can be really, really intimidating, but I'd go in with an open mind and I would, you know, make sure that you guys are having a crew meeting, that kind of thing. I'm wondering if there's any other specific you know, recommendations you might have besides just saying like, go in with, with enthusiasm, enthusiasm and, uh, 
you know, the ability to kind of respond to the adversity on the day. Yeah. My biggest piece of advice would be to take care of yourself first, um, because it's really easy to be on a crew during the day for, you know, upwards of 20 hours before you even get to crew, before you even get to pace. And during those 20 hours, you're in a very high stress environment. You know, you're stressed about your runner, you're running around back and forth from the aid stations, carrying a bunch of stuff. You probably aren't remembering to drink a lot of water, electrolytes, eat a lot of food, but you're basically building yourself up to then run a pretty solid 20 or whatever miles. And so you need to be taking care of yourself really well during the day so that you're able to pace really well at night, because if you don't, you're not going to be the best pacer. And then your, your runner is going to be, you know, waiting for you, or you're going to be bonking in the middle of the run when you need to be the one that's there for them, making sure they're not bonking, making sure you're staying on trail and all of those things. So take care of yourself. I think that's really, really pertinent advice. And I've seen it, I've seen it backfire. I've seen people not do that rather Mm -hmm. at races like Western States where it's hot or it's cold or you need snacks. Like you have to, you got to make sure that you've got what you need for the day. Cause it's going to be a long day for everyone, particularly if you're crewing and pacing, that's a big caveat there. If you're just pacing and you're kind of rolling in, rolling out a little bit less stressful for you, but if you're crewing and you're with the runner all day and pacing, um, really, really important that you got that, that cooler packed, the snacks packed so that you are good to go for the duration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess I have a similar society slam today that I chose too. It's a question as well. Um, it's from a total training nerd. So she's like ourselves. So she's very relatable, <laughs> but she was wondering that she's heard a lot about the 80, 20 role for intensity, where 20% of the runs are at high intensity, 80% are not. She's wondering if that is something you follow for trail running, because obviously trail running is different than road running. Um, This is obviously a little bit of a can of worms, but kind of just wanted, you know, Corinne's coach mine on this. Yeah. So I think that, you know, broad strokes, not a bad philosophy, right? Because I think what it stresses is that 80% of your runs should be aerobic. And I think there are a lot of runners out there who, you know, they don't do the highest intensity and they don't do the lowest intensity very well. And they're always in that medium intensity. And so that's more like 96% of your runs, you know, you got a 96, 4%, you know, 96, four <laughs> ratio going on there. And we don't want that. And so I think what this stresses to me is not that you got 20% intensity. It's that it's that overwhelmingly the goal is to do a lot of training pretty darn easy. And then up to about 20% of it or so, which is probably like maybe even high. If you think you're training, like say, for example, you're training. 10 hours a week, right? Mm -hmm. That's 600 minutes. 20% of that would be two hours, two hours a time. Like that's, that's a lot of intensity, I think for, for many people, right. Unless you're in like a steady state or an LT block where you might be hitting that amount of intensity during the week. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, you know, if you think of averages and you think of it averaging out over a course of a season where maybe you've got higher intensity blocks with lower volume and then higher volume blocks with lower intensity, Um, I think it probably averages out similar to that for most people in our sport and in endurance sports in general, it's probably more like 90, 10 Mm -hmm. for people who are truly like able to run, you know, easy in that aerobic zone. That's my Mm -hmm. biggest concern is that when I see 80, 20, I say, yeah, because you're doing a lot of your runs easy. And that Uh is the thing that I would really like hone in on because unless you're wearing like a a heart rate monitored chest strap or you're, or you, and you know, your lactate threshold and that kind of stuff. And you know, at what heart rate, um, you're going over X millimoles of blood lactate. It's going to be really hard to know this because your Garmin watch and your polar watch and your Coros watch and all the watches, they've all got these predictive features that like do nothing for you. 
I can say that, I think, broadly. I'm not paid by any watch company. I can say <laughs> that. That's all like all the stuff that your watch tells you about your training being. Mine tells me that I'm unproductive most days. So thanks, guys. So I <laughs> like don't, you know, don't look at those zones too closely, I would say. Mm-hmm. And I would say just like really like put yourself in the camp that like most of my runs need to be easy so that I can do my hard runs hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would just reiterate the same thing. I think I kind of sh- don't like when it's something so concrete, like 80, 20, because in my mind, my first question was like yours. It's like, well, is that, is that lactate threshold work? Is that tempo work? Or is that like, is that tempo work? Is that anaerobic crazy high VO2 max work? Or is that just aerobic work? And you know, yeah. 80, 20 doesn't leave room for that really. But yeah, I think in, in terms of running easy, it is almost more important for trail runners, right? Because if you're running on a trail, it's a lot easier to have these really high jumps in heart rate if you get to a hill. Mm-hmm. And so really being mindful that you're not like always going lactic when you're running hills on your easy days, you know, cause that'll add up and, and skew that ratio a lot, but yeah. And I think that's, I think the general principle, right. Is like the 80% is aerobic and then the 20% is anything above aerobic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Aerobic threshold or probably like whatever VT, yeah. VT one, you know, okay. however, yeah, however yeah. they divide it out in their little uh-huh. things, you know, what, what a lot of people used to call and some people still call like aerobic threshold. Like it's, yeah. I think everything about that. Do you think aerobic threshold is still in the 80? No, I think that goes think into the, yeah. Got it. See, but then the 20 is just so annoying then because aerobic threshold versus like VO2 max intervals are so different. Yeah. But if, okay. Right. <laughs> Volume and intensity are on a teeter totter. Yeah, yeah. Can't both be high at the same time. So if you're in a VO2 max block doing super high intensity, yeah, your overall volume is going to be lower. So I think Mm -hmm. it like I think it averages out over the course of a training season, but not so well over the course of a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. Okay. I don't think we went that bad. I don't think we can of worm that too bad. No. Um, I hope that helps and that didn't just confuse you. If it confused you, slide back into our DMs. So (laughs) as always, send us your questions. Um, send us your concerns, your comments, your criticism. We'll take it all. Our DMs are open. Um, I'm going to continue to say that for forever and ever slide into our DMs. And uh, until next time, we'll see you on the trail.